I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Rosie, Rosie, I'm going to go around this way, look. Oh, look at the hairy bullet. Maximum fly past. It's a fur blur. Nice one. Hey, how you doing, listeners? Adam Buxton here. Nice to be with you again. Uh, I'm just taking a rather cold and murky walk this evening with Rose. It's only five and yet the sun is down. By the time I return from this walk, it'll be quite dark. I have my head torch on, but uh, we're definitely into that phase. The wintry phase. It's supposed to be a cold one this year. Oh, great. Anyway, let's not get too uh, depressed by that. Before I brilliantly contextualize this week's guest, Allow me to announce a couple of things briefly for you podcats. A new range of Adam Buxton podcast t-shirts, mugs, posters, badges, and other amazing essential stuff is available now to buy online. Just search for Adam Buxton official merchandise. You should find the site or you can access it via my um, malfunctioning blog, adam-buxton.co.uk and click on the merch button. Yeah, we got some good stuff there. Thank you so much to uh, BSI Merchandise and to Helen Green and Luke Drozd for designing some of that stuff. And what's more, the free Adam Buxton app containing exclusive bonus podcast episodes, jingles and videos is now available to download from all good app outlets and probably some bad ones too. I'll tell you more about what's on the uh, Adam Buxton app, if you're interested, at the end of the podcast. But right now, let me tell you about podcast episode number 55, which features a conversation with British comedian, actor, writer and director Simon Amstel. Back in the early 2000s, I used to watch Pop World on Channel 4, on which Simon and co-host Mikita Oliver would uh, lampoon pop stars and pop culture, pop chips. No, they hadn't been invented at that point. But that style of intelligent irreverence, albeit with a slightly more serrated edge, made Simon an ideal host for the BBC's music-based comedy panel show Never Mind the Buzzcocks in the second half of the noughties. And he provided that show with many memorably funny and sometimes slightly uncomfortable moments. Like, of course, the time that Preston from pop group The Ordinary Boys walked off during the taping of a show after Simon had, uh, with mischievous glee, read out passages from the autobiography of his then-wife, ex-Big Brother star Chantelle Horton. As well as writing and acting in two series of the BBC sitcom Grandma's House, Simon has gone on to carve out a highly successful career as a stand-up comedian. Uh, He is, as I speak, touring his third uh, stand-up show, What Is This? And his book, Help, which was published earlier this year and which contains, in part, passages from his previous shows, is described as the hilarious and heartbreaking account of Simon's ongoing compulsion to reveal his entire self on stage, to tell the truth so it can't hurt him anymore. Loneliness, anxiety, depression. This book has it all and more. I've read it. It's great. Earlier this year, Simon's film Carnage brilliantly satirised the curious way that many of us are able to ignore the suffering of our fellow animals in order to continue consuming meat and dairy products. 
And as you'll hear in this conversation, Simon endured my ignorant, non-vegan questions and attitudes with good humour and only slight weariness. And I do recommend Carnage. You can see it on YouTube at the moment, at least. Don't tell the big British castle. It's very funny. It's unsettling and very interesting, well put together and researched. And it has at least begun to modify some of our habits here at Castle Buckley's, hasn't it, Rosie? Yes, yeah, good that you stopped putting my dog milk in your tea. Well, I have. I can't speak for my wife. My wife. But towards the beginning of my conversation with Simon, he told me about the trip that he took to Peru in order to take part in an ayahuasca ceremony, which seems to have been profoundly helpful for Simon. Although it should be noted that people do sometimes have terrifying experiences and violent reactions to the drug. So, of course, you shouldn't book your tickets to Peru without thinking carefully about whether it is right for you. Now, I'm saying that because there was enough of a backlash after I mentioned the game Balls, phone game, to Miranda Sawyer on the uh, podcast recently. And since then, people have been tweeting me to uh, blame me for their addiction to balls. So I'm trying to be responsible now when it comes to ayahuasca. Here we go. Covet technology at all? Mm, sometimes. I think maybe I used to more. And I'm, I'm usually quite late to getting the thing that you need to have. I had a, a pager for a long time. A pager? <laughs> yeah. Like, definitely people were having phones at the point that I was still on a pager. They just used to buzz in your pocket, right? Yeah, it was fine. Yeah. You know, it was just fine. And I bet your pager was buzzing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably one of the reasons you loved it. I like that you didn't have to call, like, if you weren't near a phone, there was no commitment to talk to anyone. Exactly. That's the good old days, yeah. isn't it? That's like an early incarnation of haptics, I suppose. What was haptics? Well, haptics, I'm, I'm probably getting this totally wrong. As I understand it, haptics is the thing that when you press a button on an iPhone, mm -hmm. there's a little yield to it, or a little, it feels like you're clicking a button. Right. Even though actually you're not. It's like the illusion of clicking something created by a little weird jolt that it gives you. Ah. You're so, going to Google this? What are, you, are you a Googler? Yeah, of course. Do you Google everything when you're not sure about it? Not during an interview. I do. <laughs> That's how you and I are different. <laughs> Haptic. Relating to the sense of touch, in particular relating to the perception and manipulation of objects using the senses of touch and... And what the hell's that word? Prop. Proprioception. I've never even heard the word proprioception before. It sounds mm. like a made-up word. Oh, you, you explained it very well then. Oh, yeah, I wasn't too far off. No. And then do you... Because you're... You are, um, you know, a person who thinks a lot about the world, your place within it. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's what you're known for. That's me, <laughs> As yeah. a deep thinker. <laughs> <laughs> and so do you worry about the sort of technological aspect of it the the it's uh, scenario it's, of us all being augmented weirdos yes my boyfriend that's what he's most worried about at the moment is, right is the the robots the robots what specifically what's what's the worrying scenario in his mind that it's just inevitable that we'll build something and it'll be that'll be the thing then and there, there won't be really any need for us if anything we're causing too much trouble so he's worried about the terminator scenario mm. and, and also things to do with uh I don't know, various ethics morality questions yeah yeah to do with how we how we hmm, i should listen more when he speaks but there's, there's <laughs> <laughs> there was some very interesting stuff that you were saying the other day <laughs> i always think like you've got to have a bit of faith in 
humanity though right i mean there's lots of terrible things about human beings Mm. lots of very stupid things about the way we live but at the same time people have been worried about robots since the dawn of the industrial revolution really and a lot of those fears have come true Mm -hmm. but then you have to to some degree you you have to have faith in our desire to treat each other decently yes and to avoid certain massive pitfalls when it comes to new technology i mean as i'm saying this all i can think of is examples where we've (laughs) people's worst fears have become realized maybe it's just best to sort of like we're alive now yeah they haven't killed us yet so let's have a lovely podcast exactly without technology of course this podcast wouldn't exist no what then what would we do have a conversation that wasn't recorded right pointless pointless so look here's a question relating to what we were just saying that also relates to your book help and you talk in the book about a kind of fairly pivotal moment that you went through in the last few years when you went to peru and you took ayahuasca that's how you pronounce it right I think so. I mean, I, I probably should have done more research before I started banging on about it. But yeah, ayahuasca, ayahuasca. It's spelt ayahuasca. Mm. Ayahuasca. Some people say ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. I think they're wrong. Uh-huh. Would you have gone to Peru and taken ayahuasca if you knew that you were not allowed to speak about it in public and turn it into material? Yes. Yes. I mean, the question suggests that I only went there because it might be material. No, I believe that you went there because you found it primarily interesting and, you know, there was a possibility that it would be enlightening and so it turned out to be for you. But in the bad moments, in the, in the sort of bits where you're travelling there and it's boring and maybe you get there and you worry that perhaps it's going to be a bit of a waste of time or you feel a bit ill, there's quite a lot of puking involved. Yes, in those moments, do you not find yourself cheering yourself up by telling yourself, oh, well, at least this will be a funny story? I don't think that moment comes in the moment of the puking, for example. I don't, yeah. think, uh, I don't think it's that immediate for me. It definitely comes at some point. But with what happened in Peru, it was so outside of anything logical or rational. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to talk about it at all mm-hmm. because it didn't... I, I couldn't find any way to discuss it in a way that would make sense to people who hadn't experienced it. And in one stand-up show, I sort of pieced together some of the funnier elements. And in the book, I found a way to write about it that hopefully makes some sense, but still is a bit peculiar because it was all beyond language and beyond anything that makes sense in this culture. And also I felt like, oh, am I appropriating something that I really shouldn't be discussing? Because I don't know. I'm not a shaman. I haven't worked with this medicine for decades. I'm just like an idiot who came here from England with depression and is leaving, having got to the root of that depression, feeling much perkier. But I don't really know why. I think I may have seen God, but I'm not sure. <laughs> what made you go out there in the first place? Well, I w- I'd been in psychotherapy for two years and it got me to cry. I mean, that had, that had happened very tricky at first. I went in there because I was 29 and thought I keep repeating the same patterns in my romantic life. I, I, I'll, I'll be okay being 30 as long as I become a different person. And she, it turned out, was trying to get me to just be a person who could be present with another human being. So in, the, in one of the sessions, one of the first sessions, I was being quite funny, I think. Mm-hmm. And she said, it's really good that you can be funny, but you don't have to be funny here. And I got what she was saying. I carried on talking. And then she said, let me just stop you again. You know, you don't have to be interesting. Oh, not even interesting. <laughs> then I was really confused and said, do you want me to tell these stories, but not as well? Yeah. And what she wanted was for me to be authentic and grounded and able to feel something. But I found that quite difficult because I was so funny and interesting. Yeah. So that was two years mm-hmm. of eventually breaking me down. So I was able to just be a human being. So but you I... went in there, you were boring, unfunny, and you started crying. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, here I am. (laughs) Finally, you found me. (laughs) (laughs) But I felt like there was still something, something that we're not getting to here. And yeah, then a friend of mine had gone to Peru, drunk this plant medicine called ayahuasca. It was the third time maybe I'd heard about it. So I felt, although maybe in retrospect, I'm saying that I felt this, that it was calling to me. Mm -hmm. When we arrived there, 
me and the other people from around the world, all there for various different reasons, mainly depression. The idea was that we had, we, we'd been called there. And then the, and the, there were four ceremonies where we sat in a circle in the darkness. There was a lot of chanting and throwing up and then visions. And this is, uh, you sit there and you take the, what's the actual you, stuff? What form does it take? You drink a kind of like not very nice tasting brew, which is made up of a couple of different plants. And that's sort of bitter. Yeah, not nice, but you figure out who you are, so it feels like it's worth it. Can you have sugar with it? <laughs> it wasn't offered. No, not even Candorel. No, sorry. So you just drink that down. Yeah. How long does it take to start acting? Uh, well, in the first ceremony, nothing really happened for me at all. And I found it really annoying that everyone else was having these brilliant experiences and throwing up, and I couldn't throw up, and it was so embarrassing. Right. And in the second one, I told myself to just really let go and stop trying to make something happen. And then things started to occur, maybe about half an hour after drinking the thing. Yeah, I saw myself in the womb. Whoa. And um, had a whole conversation with my baby self and found the thing that had been responsible for my whole silly personality. And you were being attended by qualified ayahuasca professionals. Yes, proper proper shamans. Yeah. Yep. It was I trusted them completely even though when they walked out in that first ceremony they were wearing identical outfits. That was the only moment where I thought what am I doing here? This is a worry. But apart from that I felt very looked what after. What kind of outfits? Are they like sort of modern outfits or No, or like traditional? Tra- traditional Peruvian shaman costume right, whatever. Okay. I mean, we're all we're all in white, which was either something to do with some kind of purification ritual or because we were in the dark and it was easier to see us. Do they provide you with the white clothes? No, or? they said just bring white clothes. Bring what I'd be in. Trouble. Yeah. I don't really have any. Really? You just, could, well, you just go and buy a white t-shirt. Yeah. Would that be enough? <laughs> what about my grey shorts? Are they going to be okay with Doesn't that? Doesn't sound like it's calling to you. No, it is calling to me. I mean, I'm being, I'm being glib because that's yeah. my, it's so alien to yeah. anything that I've ever done or, or probably would ever but do. But there was a need. It wasn't like I, did, I didn't go there sort of because I thought it would be like a fun holiday. Like there was a real need to yeah, do it. I sure. was really at a point where I wasn't able to f- even feel sad anymore. I'd sort of gone past the point of sadness because yeah. it was sort of too painful. And so I was numb. Numb is the big word. And it really uh, it reset me. It, uh, I felt like I understood how I'd got to where I'd got to. And uh, felt free of a very limited identity. And is there a cynical voice in you? I mean, people who watched you on TV in the early days yeah. very much identified <laughs> you with a kind of suspicious, cynical, snarky way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. And, and it was very funny. But is that voice in you speaking when you're going out to Peru to take ayahuasca? And what's it saying to you? There's, a, there's definitely a voice saying, I don't know how I'm going to explain this to anyone. But I was so desperate. Also, the things I was cynical about tended to be things like PR nonsense and, I don't know, the particular hat that the pop star had chosen to wear. You know, I got into Buddhism a little bit at the same sort of time that I was doing those shows. I wasn't cynical about the, you know, the the illusion of self. I was quite into that, you Mm -hmm. know. So I I think the things that I was snarky about felt appropriate to be snarky about. Yeah. Hmm. Interestingly, in the DVD extras of Avatar, uh-huh. there is something that looks a lot like an ayahuasca ceremony in, in the deleted scenes. Oh, yeah. Well, I could believe that James Cameron would have done something There's, like I that. I think he definitely has. Yeah. Because I saw Avatar straight after I came back from Peru. Right. I was like, oh, my, this is my favourite film. That's what I just did. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, na- yeah, nature. Yes, that's, that's, what, that's how I feel about nature. I plugged my ponytail <laughs> into a horse's arse as well. <laughs> Which were the bits in Avatar that made you think, uh, oh, yeah. It's like the, just the whole premise of it. I had this real feeling afterwards, like this real connection to nature. I had a real urge to hug a tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd heard the phrase tree hugger before. I'd never really connected what that meant. But I really felt like hugging a tree. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's what those people feel. Couldn't find a tree, despite being in the rainforest. So I found a wooden post and hugged that for about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kissing this post saying, thank you, thank you so much, you've, you know, you've saved me, you've saved me, yeah. but I really meant it. And it seemed, and beyond any duty to repay nature, it seemed pretty obvious that we should live in alignment with the planet that we happen to be sitting on, not think of it as something that serves us. Mm-hmm. Like this ego mania that we have as human beings is a real problem. Mm. I'm not sure what the answer is, but it's a problem. 
Yeah. Well, I guess the answer is to keep talking about it and to be not too judgmental. I mean, I feel like that's the answer. I feel like mm-hmm. at the moment, more and more people are thinking about all this stuff. But often the response or the way they go about it is to get very indignant and very angry mm. with the people who are not yet enlightened, who haven't got with the program. Because you're talking about implementing <laughs> quite massive cultural shifts, yeah. you know, that used to take generations to occur. And now, just in the last 50 years, society is almost unrecognisable in some ways. In other ways, of course, it's the same old shit. Yeah, we had this problem when we made a film I made yes. called Carnage. Which I watched, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. And um, it's set in 2067, where the idea of eating animals or consuming their liquids is so absurd and traumatising that the young people can't quite understand the former generation. And so the film is an attempt, it's a pretend documentary, to show young people that the elder generation didn't really know what they were doing. And we should feel compassionate towards them. And that seemed to be the way of being <laughs> not too judgmental about people currently eating animals. It made it something that could be watched by people who were still doing the thing that we were judging in the film. Yeah. Although it is, I mean, it's, it, it's hard to watch because it's like becoming a vegan is quite a big deal if you've lived for 45 years just you know, eating dairy and eating meat. And and if you've got a family and you've got children and there's a whole structure that's built up and now you have to shift that and you've got to convert not only yourself, but your partner and, and the children you live with, etc. And you're struggling just to convert them to do all sorts, you know, to keep their room tidy or do their right. homework or be a decent person. And now on top of that, one of the crutches that we all rely on just yummy food and things that we don't have to think too much about right that's been kicked away right even that by the one coming into had. the house yeah and saying right, right. look guys i've, <laughs> I've seen simon and film i've actually had a serious think about what morrissey's been bollocking on about all these years <laughs> and i think that it would do us all good to change the way we think about animals and eating them because i mean nothing in the film you know once you'd stripped away the satire Mm -hmm. i didn't disagree with any of it and i can't think of too many really good reasons to carry on being a meat eater Mm -hmm. i mean i really would struggle the thing i would really miss is sorry this is like a classic thing that (laughs) This is, this is the sort of thing I have to listen Classic to all the time. Classic vegan conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, th- I made this, partly made the film just so I wouldn't have to do this one. So. <laughs> <laughs> what are the things people say? They, they, they say, oh, I'd really miss my bacon sandwich or... Those sorts of things. I guess it comes down... I mean, I don't want to be the guy who, like, takes your, like, one bit of joy away. Although if your only bit of joy is a dead pig and some bread, then <laughs> maybe you should look at that. You can say that about almost any fun thing in life. You were the guy hugging a fucking post out in Peru, mate. Well, he saved me that. He saved me that bit of wood. Yeah, but I've had a few bacon sarnies that have saved me. Well, I think there are alternatives is good news. Yeah. So that's fine. Even in, like, quite mainstream supermarkets now, there are all sorts of alternatives. It's not a big deal. I mean, what it comes down to, if I was to be sitting here judging you or anyone listening, do you think the pleasure you're taking from eating or drinking the thing is more significant than the pain and the suffering caused to the other animals on the planet. But, and as I said that, I felt like, oh, God, Simon, didn't used to be funny. <laughs> Wasn't there a time? We've established that you found enlightenment by not being funny. <laughs> no, um, I have it now as a choice. What she wanted was for me to have intimacy yeah. as a choice, as well as um, right, it's funniness. A, and uh, It's one of the available settings. Yes, it's not like it's not like a panic button anymore. It's not like, oh, yeah. God, I better be funny so no one hurts me. Yeah. But, I mean, the whole thing about suffering and, and creating suffering and animals living off one another, that seems to a lot of people to be just a fundamental aspect of life on this planet. We all go around surviving one way or another and doing what we need to do to survive and and we're not the only animal that does that we're the only animal that takes the milk from another species Uh like if if they're allowed to calves are only drinking the milk of their mother 
<laughs> like it's really peculiar that we do that. If like calves started attaching themselves to human women's breasts, we'd find it difficult, right? Well. <laughs> well. <laughs> and um and also uh you know, just because there are all sorts of things going on out there. There's all mm-hmm. sorts of violent things that uh, other animals have to do in order to survive. We don't have to do those things in order to survive, and yet we're being incredibly violent. And on such an ab- absurd, obscene scale, it's, there's nothing natural about any of the meat industry now. I mean, there's nothing circle of life about it. It's pretty awful. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, you know, into telling people to just do whatever the hell they want, because I made my film, I did my, I did my bit. Yeah. And my mum, who generally doesn't pay as much attention to the thing I'm doing as to the fact that I'm doing something. Like, she's excited that I made a film more than the content. But after about two weeks, she said that she found it, like, really... She couldn't, like, take a drink or, like, buy um, the milk from cows anymore. It just seemed perverse. And then when she was seeing in the supermarket, just all all this flesh just in these freezers mm. just found it really peculiar. Then that was it for her. It and is she's, weird. you know, 60-something. Yeah, yeah. It is, but as I say, you know, it, you come back to this idea of cognitive dissonance that enables human beings mm. to do pretty much everything in the modern world. Because there are so many crazy contradictions and weird things about how we live. What are the lies you tell yourself on a regular basis? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what are the things that don't make sense in your life? Or is there absolutely nothing that doesn't make sense in <laughs> Simon Amstel? Oh my God, what a question. Do you mean like some ethical... I mean, I understand. I think I understand what you're saying, because I used to watch um, Mark Thomas's comedy product yeah. on Channel 4, and I thought, that's it. I can't now buy anything from Gap. Yeah. I definitely can't buy anything from Nike. Then I remember shopping for some shoes, and I thought I'd get some Converse, no problem. And I was telling the lady in the shop, because I was so annoying, about how I obviously wouldn't buy any Nike train, and she said, you know, Converse are owned by Nike. Right. <laughs> and I bought them anyway because I thought, who's going to know? That's the thing when you get into big corporations and yeah. especially in TV and stuff, people saying, oh, I won't do this and I won't do that, depending on what channel it is and who owns the uh, network, mm. etc. But, but this, I feel like the, the food thing is easier because it's, I think it's quite simple in my head. And I think once you make that uh, shift from thinking that humans are one thing and all other animals are this other dispensable thing there for us, there's a good book called How Not to Die. Right. And that suggests a... Uh... Fucking hell, that's a bit of a preachy title <laughs> already. <laughs> what about, like, nice vegan treats? I'd buy that before How Not to Die. <laughs> <laughs> How to stop being a fucking prick. <laughs> it's actually more of a sort of, like, it's for your own health. It's more about... But it's, it happens to say that uh, a plant-based diet would be better for your uh, Listen, honestly, your I, I believe it. I totally believe it. I'm aware of the fact now after years and years and years that on days when I don't eat meat uh, and have dairy, I do feel better and I feel less tired and I feel less mm, sort of That's nice, right? And, absolutely. And I've got more energy and, yeah. Here's, I would say, the first step. Oh, no, I don't know, really. Go on. But I think maybe like saying, like continuing to say meat and dairy, it suggests that these uh, other animals and the liquids that are coming out of them are still products for humans. Okay, right. I think it's not meat and dairy. We change the terminology. Yeah. What are we saying? Friends. <laughs> friends, yeah. <laughs> Difficult to meet your friends. Very friends. Listen, uh, of course, and it is, again, cognitive dissonance, and you make the point in your um, film that, you know, I, I, like many people, love my pet. I, I love Rosie the dog very much i talk to rosie i believe that she can feel and think and understand me Ooh. i feel it strongly mm. and yet yeah i continue to treat other animals in, a, in an entirely different way yeah just because they don't live with you yeah yeah is it a, it's a compulsion that leads you to explore that leading edge all the time yeah i'm still a, a curiosity seeker looking at the uh, idiosyncrasies of other things a mountain or a tree is the manifestation of forces that we are not capable of dealing with. I'm very drunk in this. 
There's a great bit in your book uh, when you talk about taking MDMA for the first time. Mm. You have a kissing foursome with your boyfriend. Oh, three. A kissing foursome. I wanted it to be four. Okay. It was just me, my boyfriend, and one other person. It was just some kissing. Yeah. Yes. It's all right. I'm not judging. Sorry. I mean, I just... Um. (laughs) It was just some kissing, Adam. No one got hurt. Everything was fine. And was it the next day, the wonderful poos? Yeah. So I'm quoting from your book now. Then the next day, I did the most wonderful poos. They were just slowly gliding out of me like elegant canoes. And so many. I think they must have been waiting. Through 15 years of anxiety. We can leave now. And two days after that, I couldn't stop crying. (laughs) I'm building up a pretty good uh, picture of what you get up to now. That sounds fun. I mean, the canoes. Wow. I was actually envious when I read that sentence. I was like, oh, that sounds nice. It was a really, yeah, it was really good. What is it about MDMA that makes you do wonderful poos then? I think I was relaxed for the first time in a while. Okay. Yeah, I think it really felt like... Sphincter party. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think I was relaxed. It enabled an intimacy, uh, like a deep intimacy that I hadn't experienced before. Yeah. It was just wonderful. I was able to just be present with another human being without feeling like I had to be better. Right. And I felt like, oh, this is okay. And just, not that you, I think it's a great teacher as a medicine. And I say medicine rather than drug, mm-hmm. either because of pretentiousness or because I think really these things should be legal. They've been used to help with like you know, couples counselling yeah. and to treat PTSD. Children should be encouraged <laughs> to take drugs, is what you're saying. <laughs> I think what it did, it got, it, um, it dissolved all the boundaries of my own personality and the boundaries of society in that moment. Yes. With, with that All the expectations that, that come into play, especially at a party, yeah. which is such an anxious-making scenario yes, anyway, yes. really. And normally I'd be uh, thinking, what, what, are we supposed to be in the kitchen? Now are we moving towards the living room? And yeah. with this MDMA, I was just able to just like lie back and like look into someone's eyes for about an hour. Right. And it's just wonderful. And not, you know, not addictive. I mean... I mean, for a while, I thought the only problem I have in my life now is not being on MDMA. Okay. But apart from that, it taught me that something, that level of intimacy and uh, relaxation and joy and bliss, were, these things were possible. And so now I notice myself, if I'm getting to a place where I'm slightly anxious or nervous for no particular reason, other than I'm just talking to another person, uh, to sort of notice that and think, oh, I'm, actually, I'm completely safe here. This is fine. There's no reason to feel like I have to host the situation or control it. I'm all right here. Mm-hmm. So that's good. And so like, have you ever thought about what's actually happening when you go into one of those social situations, a party being the most extreme one, I suppose, where you're up against people that perhaps you haven't met before mm-hmm. and you're trying to make an impression, you're trying to control the way mm-hmm. that they think about you and mm-hmm. how you come across. You're trying to filter out the worst aspects of your personality <laughs> and highlight the best ones. And so as you're in your stand-up mode, you must have unpacked all those interactions before. Yes. Like, can you talk me through what happens? I learned on a clown course (laughs) that you, uh, you know, you you check in with the audience or the person that you're with if they want to play with you. And if they don't seem to be interested in playing with you, then you move on to another person, then maybe they'll play with you. And I do that now, whereas it used to be, why do you hate me? What can I do to make you love me? Now you're reminding me of my father. Okay, how can I make you love me, daddy? (laughs) It was like that. I just keep banging on at them until they had to walk away. (laughs) Right. What kinds of people are you most attracted to? What sort of personalities do you really like to spend time in the company of? Mm, people who are very open and ideally it's somebody who has or has had some anxiety or whatever kind of problem in their life and has maybe had some therapy so they have a language for discussing it and isn't afraid to. And also I, I, I'm... Um, guilty of thinking occasionally that I could be the therapist for this person right. and so I'm, I'm, I quite like it if they buy into that as well yeah <laughs> it doesn't always work it was a couple of years ago the Edinburgh Festival right I was high from a show that I'd done I just felt great I felt like I could do anything like I just made all these people laugh the show had gone so well I came off stage and I saw this guy and I sort of sensed in him a real sadness I didn't know him but I got introduced to him by someone else and I said to him, in front of his friends, what's this sadness? 
<laughs> like I was going to heal him. And he Did looked at me. Did you say it with a smile on your face? No, I said, I looked at him like, like, with, like a guru. Yeah. Great intensity, totally present. I said, what's this sadness? I used to be the host of Never Been the Buzzcocks. <laughs> and I sense a great deal of sadness in you. I was also on Pop World, where I learned from Nikita Oliver how to sense sadness in other people. And now I sense it in you, my friend. Here in the Pleasance Courtyard. He was alarmed. Yeah, how did that go? He he just looked at me like like Fuck he just off, sort of mate. shook his head. Yeah, and I and I, I thought I was being really sensitive. And I thought I, I thought okay, I get it. I can't talk about it right now. And yeah. I put my like a lunatic. I put my hand on his arm, mm-hmm. looked him in the eye, and said, "Whatever it is, you can let it go now." Whoa! <laughs> Holy Moses! And then he went, "Oh, can I?" And I was like, "Oh shit! I'm not Jesus. I'm overstepped." <laughs> Yeah, that must happen a lot. I mean, you can really understand the performer ego just yeah. getting completely rampant. Yes. Wow, you've really got to watch out for that stuff, don't you? I'm not saying you personally, I'm just saying one. No, luckily not all the performer. shows go that well, so I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> Once they start knocking stars off. Yeah, yeah, those guys, okay. I used to be a real maniac, but I've got less funny. And Once you get fine. five stars, you're allowed to give out yeah. advice. Sometimes it's good, like it's not, it doesn't always go badly, that's the problem. It's like Sometimes yeah. it's like really good, and, right. and I feel like I've made a great connection with someone, especially like a, like a young gay guy or something, yeah. and I like, I feel like I... I know, I know exactly the problem. I know exactly the the shame that they're carrying, mm-hmm. and I and uh... young gay. <laughs> I feel your pain. I understand your pain. Yeah, and this book as well. You know, when I think about it being, um, you know, self involved and narcissistic, I mm. think about the young gay me, like the fourteen year old me who was like totally lost and confused. And I think that boy could have done with something like this. Right. To sort of unpack some of the. Some of the problems, and it feels, um, you know, less like a terrible thing to be doing, and it feels like a helpful, nice thing. Yes, because I suppose you could play devil's advocate and say, you know, half the problem may be excessive introspection, mm. and that if you were able just to stop thinking about yourself so much, I mean, this is all easier said than done, <laughs> but if you were able to concentrate more on other people and yep. to just making the world a better place yep. and, you know, and focused less on sort of your own ambitions and your own place in society and what people think of you and all yes. that shit that basically comes back to yourself. Yes. That's it. Then you wouldn't have half these hang-ups, you know, and you wouldn't have half these worries and you wouldn't need to write your book. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and all yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's it. But the, that, that's what felt quite good about um, doing Carnage, the film. It wasn't really about me necessarily, although it was right. full of my opinions. Uh, it, was, it felt like it was serving some other agenda than... Yeah. than, than uh... The furtherment of Simon Amstel, <laughs> the Palace of Amstel. Yeah, so this is the Buddhist thing that I also got in the ayahuasca ceremony. The, that connection to nature came about from a letting go of the self, you know, from this vision-inducing alignment with the, the universe mm. rather than, like, thinking, well, I am Simon and I'm this age and I want to do this and I've done this so far and all that sort of very small stuff. And it took a while to figure out what I wanted to do after I came back from Peru. Like, why, why? What's the point of any of it? Yeah, why? Right. And um, eventually I realised that I quite like making people laugh. And although it might have come, you know, the ability to do it has come from a moment of fear, turned into a defence mechanism, what I've been left with is quite a neat trick to be able to like, pull out when uh, it feels useful or fun. And, um, and now I'm on stage in a very joyful mode. Uh, I'm only really there because I enjoy doing it. Even though, obviously, there is still a bit of narcissism there because... How you know? How could there not be in this this bloody show business? Yeah, here we are writing books, yeah. doing stand up shows, <laughs> talking about ourselves on podcasts. Yes, but we're sort of talking about how we shouldn't talk about ourselves. Yeah, right. So well, I don't know. So we're off the hook.
not weird for me I keep coming back to the whole idea of narcissism and that's such a buzzword now mm-hmm. it's one of those things like you know people like to diagnose people as being on the spectrum in all sorts of ways right you know? yeah amateur psychologists oh he's on the spectrum and I've done it myself you know and the whole idea of narcissism though is a thing that I hear a lot of people talking about and the other day I was reading something about it and it was a sort of checklist. <laughs> Ten signs that you're oh. in a relationship with a narcissist. Is this going to prove that you're one or that I'm one? Well, oh, should we boy. see how we both okay, do? Okay, go on. All right. Well, I remember, has anyone asked you to do a thing where Preston from The Ordinary Boys reads out sections of your <laughs> book <laughs> to humiliate you? <laughs> that would be a good thing, don't, don't you think? funny. Come on. That would be like a karmic... A rebalancer. But I feel this, the book is so self-deprecating, it would be very, very difficult Preston to... Uh... Find a way. <laughs> He'd find a way. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's take our narcissism test. Okay. Conversation hoarder. Narcissist loves to talk about him or herself, doesn't give you a chance to take part in a two-way conversation. Well, certainly in this moment. In this context. But actually, I find I used to enjoy the interviewing much more than I now uh, enjoy being interviewed. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I used to like, I I feel more comfortable if I'm asking questions, which might be a controlling thing, which may be on the list. Probably. (laughs) Rule breaker. Narcissist enjoys getting away with violating rules and social norms, such Hmm. as cutting in line, chronic under-tipping, stealing office supplies... Uh, what are you guilty of in that No, list? I don't think any of those, but... You never stolen office supplies? Come on, who's no. going to miss a pack of HBs? Well, I think in the book I read about Buddhism years ago, it said any kind of stealing any is very kind of bad karma. Supplies. Right. Yeah. And so that was it for, for stealing things. <laughs> Even toilet paper. Well, you're stealing toilet paper from the office? I used to. Ah, well, maybe you needed to at the time, like when Aladdin took that bread. Yeah, that's right. That's what I tell myself. Boundary violator. This is a bit like the other one. Shows wanton disregard for other people's thoughts, feelings, possessions or physical space. Oversteps and uses others without consideration or sensitivity. Borrows items or money without returning. I don't feel as if I'm guilty of these. No, but the boundary bits. I mean, when I tried to heal that boy in Edinburgh. (laughs) That was massive boundary violator. (laughs) False image projection. Many narcissists like to do things to impress others by making themselves look good externally. Now, that's quite interesting, isn't it? The idea of doing something that makes you look good, Mm -hmm. the whole signaling culture. Mm -hmm. Be honest. Have you ever done a tweet or something that you know is just designed to make you look good? I don't tend to do anything uh, personal. You've never self-consciously retweeted... An article about some sort of super right-on subject that reflects well on you. It's generally tends to be... Because I have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I think, uh, yeah, if I was on it properly, I would yeah. probably do that sort of thing. I think still on chat shows, there is this idea that we feed people that uh, success is the most important thing, and these are the most shiny, successful people, and if you were like them, you would be happier, when actually the chat shows... But really, it should be, hello, welcome to the show. As you know, life is suffering. The self is an illusion. Please welcome my next guest whose face is just a mask covering an unknowable void. <laughs> that's what it should be, really. That's what podcasts are. Right. Oh, that's why I don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> podcasts have taken the place, because I agree with you, that's the, that's the frustrating thing about TV and so many other media, is that you don't really get to the nub of anything important. And it's just this kind of junket culture. Mm-hmm. And, and also, it doesn't seem like the people who interview people are that interested no. in the person. Everyone's just doing their job. They're turning up. They're contracted to do mm. publicity for the film. And then there's a reporter who's like, I don't fucking... Yeah, I haven't even seen the film. If I did, it wasn't very good. <laughs> and I'll ask you what your favourite socks are. And there you go. And that's the end of that. Yeah. Maybe Ruby Wax should be back on TV doing things. Yeah. That'd be good, wouldn't it? She was a hero of yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved her. Oh, my God. Have you read her? Because she's had her struggles with... Uh, yeah, I uh, went to see her show, actually. Depression and... I took my mum to see, not her last show, but the show before it, where she spoke about having depression, I think for the first time on stage. Mm-hmm. And um, there was this really definitely vulnerable story that she told. Like, definitely, clearly, Ruby Wax 
was the victim of the story and like bad, like a bad story about her going to her kid's uh, sports day and whilst her kid was running the egg and spoon race or whatever it was, she just couldn't take the, the tension of the drama of it or something to do with a flashback to her own childhood and she fainted. And her husband took her to the Priory. And definitely everyone in the audience thought, oh my God, imagine she's fainting at you. And I asked my mum how she felt about the show and what she thought. And she said, I would have loved to have fainted. <laughs> <laughs> if I'd have had a husband who could have taken me to the Priory, what a luxury. <laughs> so did she, by saying that, was she sort of saying, pull yourself together? She kind of was a bit, which isn't uh, how I feel about things. I often have to... She, and often I, I'll write things like I've written in, in this book and she'll go, it was 15 years ago. Why are you still banging on about it? Is it yeah. What's the problem? But uh, that's another way of dealing with things, I suppose. This totally denying that anything can have any effect on you ever. Yes. But she had to be. I mean, she, I mean she, what she was saying there was that she had four children to raise and if she'd have fainted, then what would have happened with those children? The, the, you know, who would have looked after them? And I now have the luxury of being able to think about myself all the time because that is my job a bit. Yes. Hello, my friend, it's good to see you again. I've got to say you're looking great. I love what you've done with your nipples and your knees and your shiny bald pate. Here's a funny line from your book. When my aunt would say, what did you get up to last night? I'd say, I went to a big gay nightclub. And she'd laugh. This went on for a month until it was clear that I wasn't joking. And she summoned me to her house. (laughs) Yeah, that's me not being able to deal with actual conversation without it being funny. That was when you started to sort of embrace a gay lifestyle <laughs> as it were yeah i guess i uh, and yeah she, and she just thought did she have no clue that no that no one had on? any clue it was very upsetting i said to my mum just after i came out to her I, I, and i was quite angry because she was she was really troubled by it and i said didn't you know like i went to this saturday morning drama club i did tap dancing and she said don't stereotype <laughs> right back in your face what it was very difficult for my it was just so out of anything that they had experienced it was just not in their their world Mm. and it took some time for everyone to sort of be okay back to the narcissism question oh yeah god grandiose personality thinking of oneself as a hero or heroine (laughs) prince or princess i think we've established that you have done that or a special kind of person some narcissists have an exaggerated sense of self-importance believing that others cannot live or survive without his or her magnificent contributions. Yeah, you've got to think of yourself as a hero, don't you? (laughs) So are all the people walking down the street, as I used to do as a youngster, listening to music on their Walkmans, Walk People, and imagining themselves as the star of their own film? Did you ever do that? Yeah, I guess I did, but probably because of the advice in that book. Right. Yeah. Top tips for being successful. Imagine yourself as the star of your own film while walking down the street. Yeah. Carefully plan a playlist. That is like the soundtrack of the movie that stars you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess I I know that a lot of people did that, but were they all narcissists? Here's what I think about that one. Yeah. I was very shy as a child. And the way I felt safe was performing in front of people, which was a a special thing to be able to do, right? Like, it isn't everyone that can get up on, on the stage and perform in front of people. So you are, therefore, at least different or doing a specific thing that other people can't do, mm-hmm. that's a bit special, right? So I felt very safe if I, if I was special. And because I still wasn't very good at one-on-one sessions, I got over my shyness through going to the Saturday morning stage school. Yeah. And uh, then I still wasn't that great at going to parties and things. So, but I felt safe if I was on the stage. You know, and, and I've, I've felt that at times, that uh, like I was on a, a holiday with my boyfriend and some of his friends, and there was a lot of in, like insistence that I would get involved in the washing up and I didn't like it because I thought I'm an artist I can't do this but I you know I had to get involved because I'm also <laughs> how also, dare you ask what, me the to washing wash up? up me I've just had some very funny thoughts which <laughs> yes. are going to be in my next stand-up yes. show I can't wash those plates <laughs> I'm important that's the kind of thing that dullards like you without any funny comedy ideas are supposed to do <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Negative so. emotions. Many narcissists enjoy spreading and arousing negative emotions to Never. gain attention. Never. Never. Oh, hang on. Oh, you mean oh. this book? Those are, but those are those are about uh, negative Ill-powerful. emotions from the past and Keep how I've overcome them. And off balance. I mean, that most people would say that oh, that no. was never mind the buzzcock, Simon. Yeah, but he was very, you know, he was just very angry with his father. That guy. Was he? he didn't know. Do you still find yourself getting interested in the in the in the pop world, as it were? Are you have you watched Taylor Swift's new video for "Look What You Made Me Do" and <laughs> thought hard about what it means? <laughs> I haven't. No. I mean, the things, I suppose I'm aware of the things that are so, you know, visible that you don't have to necessarily go onto YouTube to watch the video. Mm-hmm. So I'm aware of the ver- various pop stars, but not really. 45 million people watched Look What You Made Me Do by Taylor Swift in its first day on YouTube. Highest ever debut for a music video. <sighs> That's a lot, isn't it? And I mean, it is quite a spectacular video directed by a guy called Joseph Kahn. I'll watch it then. Shall um, I watch it? It's worth seeing. Okay. It's not a great song. You know, they paid Right Said Fred some money before they released it because they were worried that Right Said Fred were going to get in touch and go, come on, that's just a rip-off. Because the chorus is just, ooh, look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Look what you made me It's like she's found every single possible permutation of how to fit those words into uh, the available bars. Look what you made me do. 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 Um, What does she do? She is reinventing herself. And at the end of the video, there's all the previous incarnations of Taylor Swift lined up beneath a plane that has the word reputation sprayed on the side. That's the name of her new album. Okay. At the beginning, there's a gravestone, a tombstone Mm. that says Taylor Swift's reputation on it. Wow, makes me think of Jerry Halliwell's video for Look At Me. Right. Where she buried Ginger Spice. There you go. There you go. Um, But it's a sort of fairly standard trope for particularly female pop stars, it seems, Mm -hmm. that they have these slightly lame reinventions at a certain point. And invariably it's like, oh, the old me was vanilla and boring Mm -hmm. and now I'm dirty and slutty and I don't care. (laughs) And I'm going to bury them all. Yeah. But I'm powerful as well. That's the other thing. It's like, I'm making these decisions, so fuck you if you don't like it. Mm. And you've seen Britney do it before, and you've seen a lot of people, and it doesn't seem to have gone necessarily that well for them. The paternal part of me Mm -hmm. wants to... um, Put them in a nice dress. Give them some long-term perspective. Not put them in a nice dress. This is the last one. Manipulation. Using others as an extension of self. Making decisions for others to suit one's own needs. The narcissist may use his or her romantic partner, child, friend or colleague to meet unreasonable self-serving needs. Fulfill unrealized dreams. If my son doesn't grow up to be a professional baseball player, I'll disown him. Uh. Aren't you beautiful? You're going to be just as pretty as mummy. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. <laughs> That's pretty full on. I don't mm. really know too many people who are like that. Okay, so we're okay maybe. We're, well, on this test, psychology today, this is on. Okay. We're not full blown, I would say. No. That's good news, isn't it? Hmm. Party time! <laughs> we can go a little bit further. <laughs> You write in the book about being in a relationship in which you're allowed to talk about how you find other people attractive. Mm -hmm. Is that still the case in your relationship now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that a useful paradigm? Is that not ultimately, does it not sow the seeds for discontent in a relationship? It sowed seeds of more intimacy. It means that we're both revealing who we are to each other and accepting each other. And it's just true that if you're in a relationship, you're, you know, your eyes don't suddenly go somewhere else. You're still out there in the world seeing people come towards you or walking past you. Nothing really can be done about that. And so to sort of discuss that with the person that you're with and for them to say, thank you for telling me, I guess what you're saying is you're a human being. I feel that way too. Then it's, it's such a relief to not have to like, hide who you are because I was in a relationship years ago and there was such jealousy I ended up having to say 
I don't think anyone's attractive. I don't think, uh, and it's weird because before I met you, but they must have all moved. <laughs> so it's a wonderful thing that we're both, I guess, I don't know, maybe just mature enough and intelligent enough and secure enough that that's all fine. And it's not, you, not a surprise, not a surprise, you know. Yeah, and that you trust each other enough, yeah. I suppose, is the thing. Yeah. Because I think it's a difficult trick to pull off. We know we both know that the priority is the relationship. Yeah, like this, like this, this is really this is the most meaningful, fulfilling, wonderful thing, and I feel like really lucky that this particular guy wants to spend time with me and live with me and seems to love me and all those things. So I'm I'm not going to screw that up. But it helps talking about uh, how I felt like I was about to screw it up in one particular story that's in the book. It helped telling him that. Because if I hadn't have been able to tell him that, I think I probably would have screwed it up. Right, it's a sort of pressure valve. Yeah. And I guess for a lot of blokes, that comes out as kind of uh, bants with your mates. Right. About who you fancy or whatever, things that you yeah. would never say to your partner necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think the, the thing with a lot of heterosexual relationships particularly is that I don't think you would get away with it. Or there's an assumption that it's probably not going to be useful that actually it'll it'll just be the seed of discontent or it'll just eat away at you. And I'm talking about both mm-hmm. people in the relationship. Yes. And it's not exclusively a heterosexual thing, of course, but that's the thing I would just... I don't know. <laughs> like, sometimes my wife has mentioned to me that she f- finds certain people on TV attractive or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Was it me? No, you're too good-looking. Oh. She, I don't know if she's saying it... <laughs> I don't know if she's saying it to make me feel better but <laughs> the ones she points out are like yeah. real pounds oh, right really rough like oh yeah i quite like him and it's some really grotesque looking <laughs> but does that make you feel better doesn't it that doesn't make, make no. me feel good i'm like oh thanks yeah so now i see the pattern here and i can't figure out if she's just lying to make me feel better <laughs> and actually she just fancies you know tom hiddleston like everyone else <laughs> but it's weird. There, but but, but there, there have been one or two. Like every now and again, maybe she's had a glass of wine or something and she'll be honest. <laughs> and it, it'll be someone that looks very different to me. Mm. And, and then I do feel a little bit threatened. Right. Like I think maybe I would feel threatened if my boyfriend said, I really fancy that short-sighted duo over there. Mm. <laughs> and I think, oh, well, you could... You've got well, one. You, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm already here. Anyway. I think to try it. Yeah. Try saying... I have tried it and it hasn't gone well. <laughs> I have. That's the thing. Who right. Is it? Yeah, and it's been like, oh, yeah, it doesn't go down that well. Okay. But now she'll listen to this podcast, won't Not she? necessarily. <laughs> no, she generally... Sometimes she says, let's listen to a podcast, but... If she is listening to this now, I will be awkwardly shifting in the seat in the car and probably will have been thinking about reaching across and putting Radio 1 on. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's interesting. Not Radio 4, obviously. I think you and your wife should both take some MDMA. Okay, problem solved. Wait. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue.
Hey, welcome back, listeners. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with myself and Simon. I like Simon. He got me on Nevermind the Buzzcocks years ago when he was hosting. Funnily enough, I talked about one of my drug experiences that time when I took mushrooms uh, when I was at university and had a pretty bad time. I think that clip is probably still on YouTube floating around somewhere. Adam Buxton talks about mushrooms on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Anyway, he was nice to me on that show, which was good because the first time I went on Nevermind the Buzzcocks, Mark Lamar was hosting and he uh, was less warm. Uh, But that was his style, I suppose. (laughs) Anyway, thanks very much to Simon for his time. Now look, the Adam Buxton app is finally available to download for free in order to enhance the quality of your life immeasurably. Let me tell you about what you can expect on there. The app enables you to stream all episodes of the podcast so far and contains exclusive bonus episodes and extra audio that will arrive every few weeks and won't be available anywhere else. The first bonus episode, the only one on there currently, uh, features more conversations with Johnny Marr, recorded before Johnny and I settled down for the chat that you can hear in episode 51. And uh, it's quite good, that one, if I say so myself. When I listened back to it, I was pleased with the stuff that we recorded beforehand, me talking to Johnny in his car when he picked me up from the station and then Johnny... uh, giving me a tour of his new studio, chatting to me about some of his guitars and the um, equipment that he has in there, and we talk a bit more about music, Brian Eno, etc. If you enjoyed the podcast with Johnny, I really recommend this one too. It's a good companion piece. And there will be other new podcast episodes that will be exclusive to the app. They won't come out as regular episodes of the podcast on through iTunes etc you'll only be able to listen to them via the app and those will be arriving in the forthcoming weeks if you're a fan of the podcast jingles many of them are available to stream individually via the app all the all the big ones all the big hits the podcast theme ramble chat like and subscribe the uh, sort of twinkly one that is in this week's episode that uh, I think a lot of people like and they're always saying, what's that piece of music? And Anyway, you can hear that on the app. And if you are sufficiently in love with the jingles that you'd like to download them to keep, you will find a few in the merchandise store that you can access via the app or via my blog. And I've bundled some of the jingles into EPs available to download for 99p each, including, for example, a Ramble Chat EP. That one has various versions of the Ramble Chat jingle for you to keep and listen to and treasure for the rest of your life. And I've edited a a special version that you can use as a ringtone if you want. And there's also some of my old songs, Party Pom Pom, the counting song, Royal Wedding Song, etc., available on one of the other EPs and uh, I'm going to release more every now and then. At the moment there's four EPs with jingles and songs available. Also, if you choose, you can support the podcast and help pay for the app and its upkeep by purchasing access to a brand new specially made video for my like and subscribe jingle which you'll be hearing shortly. And that video has been made by animation genius Syriac. It's really good. And the app is the only place online that you can see it, or anywhere else for that matter. And once you get the app, you'll be able to find that in the video section of the app, which also enables you to stream some of my YouTube videos from over the years. There's Rosie bouncing in a field... Um, there's Cobbler Bob, Chris Salt's Lego animation uh, that's part of my Bowie bug show. There's the You Say We Pay video that I did years ago. Countryman videos. All sorts of bits and pieces. There's also, I think, a, a few private links to uh, things that the average YouTuber will not be able to find. Exciting! So as I speak, the app has only just gone live. 
Uh, I am aware that there will inevitably, over the next few weeks, be adjustments and improvements that will need to be made. So any constructive feedback from uh, you guys would be extremely welcome. I stress constructive. Thanks very much. My SoundCloud page is still a good place to leave those or any other kinds of messages for me. Very grateful indeed to Toby and Kevin from Really Quite Something Limited who designed and built the app and who I think are going to help overhaul my um, blog which is currently being subjected to occasional attacks from a spam bot. Spam bot? Which uploads posts randomly, mainly about American sport, as far as I can tell. Almost as if it knows what bores me most. No disrespect to uh, American sport fans. Anyway, do check out the app, and I hope you enjoy it. As I say, it's free, unless you want to... uh, Pay a small fee to see that Syriac video and support the podcast. Either way, I hope you enjoy it. That's probably enough waffling for this week. Thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for production support. Thanks to Matt Lamont for additional editing. And uh, thank you for downloading and listening right to the end. You're special. Rosie, where are you? It's dark now. Uh, I can see little glowing dog eyes in the distance. (laughs) Rosie, come here. We're going to head back. Come on, doggles. Wow, you look quite freaky. I've got my head torch on and all I can see is these little points of light in the darkness up ahead. There we go. Come here. Hello, dog dog. How are you doing? Do you like the dark? Yeah, I love it. It's brilliant. It's so exciting. It's an ideal environment for... um, dog in. <laughs> That's just a joke. Hey, yeah, okay. All right, let's head back, Rose. Take care. Stay out of trouble. I love you. Bye!